we are looking at 1 Samuel chapter 12, and um, I'm just going to kind of be straightforward this morning with uh, what I want to talk about. Uh, there is a verse in verse 14 where Samuel is he's giving his, uh, his farewell speech, and he says this uh, to the people of God in verse 14 of second, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12, if you're using the Pew Bible like I am. I need that. Uh, it is page 234. 234. Uh, Samuel says, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if you and both, both you and your king who reigns over you uh, will follow the Lord, it will be well with you. Let's pray. God, uh, I confess uh, that I have failed to fear, to serve, and to obey you. And I'm sure that could be said by many of us here this morning, and we pray that as we open your scripture, uh, that uh, sense of your power and might and holiness and sovereignty would come over us, and that a renewed commitment to look upon you and to follow you and to lead others to follow you, uh, to fear, to serve, and to obey you uh, would fall upon us and become our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit. Amen. So last week, we left off um, in the story of Saul. So Saul has now uh, repelled the attack of Ammon, who had um, tried to attack Jabesh Gilead there. Uh, He has repelled the attack through the power of God, God his spirit fell upon him, um, gave him extra charisma and extra uh, attack abilities. And so uh, he was able to pull forward all of the men of Israel and to rebuff Ammon. And so he has pushed off the two, if you could see here, the Philistines and the Ammonites. These were the two kind of pincer, uh, like pinching their Israel on, on either side, the two big enemies. And he has pushed off Ammon. And we won't really see a whole lot of them anymore through the story. Really, the big enemy is going to be uh, the Philistines. You might remember Goliath. He was a Philistine. It's kind of a famous, a famous story as well. So Saul has proven his ability, uh, his military might, and the fact that God has now chosen him and anointed him with power so that he can lead the people successfully. And they've all then traveled down. So Samuel says, well, let's restore, let's renew the, uh, the, 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 the kingdom. And so let's all travel down here to Gilgal, This is the Jordan River, right? Gilgal, where Israel, after their wanderings in the wilderness, down through here after they escaped from Egypt, which is kind of like way over here in the baptistry, they uh, cross over the Jordan right here at Gilgal. They take 12 stones from the Jordan River and they build the first monument and the main body of the promised land. And so Gilgal is a very important Place We might think of it kind of as the Washington, D.C. at this time of Israel. When you say, where did Israel start? Where do we think of when we think of this is the place where Israel began? Where's the monuments? Where are the cool things? Gilgal. And so they all travel to Gilgal to restore the kingdom, to recommit themselves. And they do that. And then what we have throughout chapter 12 is a speech. Now this is kind of where... Uh, if you're the eight-year-old boy reading First uh, Samuel, because I kind of revert to that. I love the First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, because it's all like shootouts and car chases. It's awesome. There's so much action. You know, there's all of these, all these things that are going on. You see these mighty men. Even like when you think of a priest, what do you think of? Like 
kind of thinking maybe somebody in like robes and he just, he's like swinging like fancy scents or something like that. Samuel is like, he's a tough guy. Like he, he leads, he is a priest who leads people into battle. There's one point where Saul doesn't have the guts to kill a guy and Samuel is so outraged, he picks up the sword and just kills the guy himself. Like this guy is business. Like, he's hardcore. And so when we read these stories, everyone, all the way from the priests, the prophets, the kings, all the, the people in these stories are, are just chock full of determination and action. And then what do we get? A speech. A speech. And so this is probably where we're tempted to tune out or to move on quickly. And I don't want to do that because I think there's something really important going on here. What we see in this text is the character of godly leadership. And this is an incredibly important uh, issue today as we see leaders taking positions of power who are not necessarily godly in the secular center. We see leaders taking positions of powers in churches and denominations who are not following scripture or godly. We see men and women in the home who are leading their homes and raising their children who are not people of godly repute who say that they are, but their way of life in no way echoes this. And my hope this morning is to convince each and every one of you, if you're a Christian here today, that you are, by God's calling, a leader. And if you are not leading your children or your co-workers, or the kids that you see at school, if you are not leading the people around by your words and by your deeds, somebody else is. And let's pull no punches. They're leading them to hell. You are the God that they see. You are the Jesus that they see. And if you aren't living up to that in power and determination, in fear, servants, in obedience to God, they aren't seeing it. They aren't seeing it. And what I'm hoping you will see today as we look at Samuel and his life is you'll say, I want that to be me. I want that to be me. Samuel begins his speech, uh, page 233, again, of the, the Pew Bible here. First Samuel, chapter 12, verse 1. Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me. And I have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old, and I am gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked with you from my youth to this day, and here I am. Testify against me before the Lord. So here we have the proper name of God, before God, and before his anointed so again, remember with me that anointed is something that you'd, you'd pour oil over a, a person to um, set them apart for a position of kingship from this time on. It will be a position of kingship. And anointed is the same word in Hebrew as Messiah. Messiah is the same word in Greek as Christ. Good. Some of you weren't sure. That's all right. Christ. And so every time we say Jesus Christ, we say Jesus the anointed one, which is to say Jesus the king. Jesus the king. Maybe it would help us out if we said Jesus the king more often to really get a proper view of who Jesus is. So all that to say, testify against me before God and before the king. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? We wouldn't really probably use those. I don't even know if the Freunds have oxen. I don't see them here today. But um, 
So we might say something like, whose tractor have I taken or whose car have I stolen, right? The donkey would have been mode of transportation. Who have I defrauded? Who have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. I'll I'll set it right. And they said, so all of Israel answers back, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is my witness against you and his anointed is his is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand and they all answer yeah you got it for he is my witness they all agree now what is happening here as i said is is similar to what is going to transpire this this coming friday so we have sort of the inauguration day in which a new president will be brought into office and that president will first pledge to, to, to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution is that thing that kind of makes the United States what it is. It constitutes its existence, right? And so you have this thing that's happening that, that we're probably all very familiar with and we also have, thank God, because we don't have to worry about coups and dictators and all these kinds of things, but usually, anyway, a transition of power that is very peaceful where one president will hand it over to another president and this is very similar to what is happening here in this text. Samuel has led the people. He has been a prophet, he has been the priest, and he has been a judge. And remember, before kings, there were judges, and God would raise them up, and they would sort of rule for a particular time, but there would not be a lineage. There wouldn't be, um, you know, Samuel's children wouldn't take over after he was gone. He would be raised up, and then he would die off, and then God would raise somebody up later on. And so what Samuel is doing here is President Samuel is, is, is transferring power throughout this chapter to President Saul. And so he's beginning by saying, all right, I have ruled over you in some ways. I have led you faithfully. Is that true? And they say, yeah, yeah, it's true. Man, if our people in Washington could but say the same things, right? I mean, we see the value of this kind of integrity. And who could say that today? Who have I defrauded? Who have I taken a bribe to? Who, who has bought me? And everyone says, no, Samuel, no one's bought you. I mean, man, there's a stark contrast there, isn't there? Now, the important question that sits, I think, at the feet, uh, uh, that sits in my mind as I, read, as I read this, is why hasn't Samuel abused his power? Like, you know, presidents and senators and, and people on school boards and things like that, they, they have the ability to, to abuse power a little bit. But, I mean, Samuel's like, he's like the head cheese of the whole thing, right? I mean, he, he could abuse his power just willy-nilly. I haven't said that in a long time. Willy-nilly, he could abuse that power. And he doesn't do it. Why? Because he fears God. Because he fears God. Because he fears God. What's more important? To fear God or to love God? We talk a lot about loving God, don't we? How many of our songs, how many of our stories, how many of... We talk about... If, I, if the title of my sermon today was to love, serve, and obey God, you'd be like, oh, well, that's really nice. That sounds right. Fear 
serve and obey God sounds not quite right, except for the fact that the Bible says over 150 times that you are to fear God, and it rarely says the same thing about loving God. And when it uses the word love, it doesn't use the word love the way we use the word love, which means to say, when we say I love God, that means I feel affection toward God, which is wonderful. I want you to have that. I want you to feel affection toward God. But almost never does the Bible use that word in that way. Usually when it uses the word love toward God, it means loyalty and what is the root of loyalty a mutual respect that begins with a sense of fear the fear of god is the beginning of wisdom says solomon and it is very interesting to me that this is something that we as Christians sort of shy away from, and yet it's so core to it. In fact, Jesus says, Jesus, you know, the, the eminent hippie tree hugger um, with his long hair and his, his big blue Bambi eyes that you've seen in all the pictures, you know what he said? He said, why do you fear men who can kill the body but can't do anything to what is eternal about you? You should instead fear God who can destroy both your body and what is eternal about you forever. We have replaced um, the fear of the Lord with the love of the Lord instead of bringing the two together, because I think they're both important. I kind of did a trick question, which is more important. I think they're both important, but it's interesting how often the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. And why is it so important to fear the Lord? Because there is a day of judgment. Because there's a reason to. Because there's something that is so special about each and every one of you that we can call you an eternal being. That there's a resurrection day on which every single one of you will exist for all eternity. Do you understand the weight of that truth? And what hangs in the balance then today is not just the good actions or bad actions, not just how people will view you or not view you, but about what you will be doing forever. And the scriptures say, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. Sounds so fancy. Those who make sinful laws. Woe to the writers who keep on writing oppression, who turn aside the needy from justice, who rob the poor people, uh, rob the poor of my people of their right, the widows that may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. Those people who do those things, and whether we're talking about big global scale presidents, CEOs, all this thing, all the way down to an abusive parent or an abusive spouse. Woe to you. What, sh- what should you look for? What should you wait for? What should you expect? The prophet says, what will you do on the day of punishment? It's interesting that, uh, that the Hebrew writer in, in Isaiah 10, where I'm quoting, uses the word punishment. He doesn't say the word judgment. He just comes right out and says, the day of punishment and the ruin that will come To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, to fall among the slain. Those who practice lies, injustice, who favor their friends, who take bribes, who practice usury, nothing remains but to fall among among the slain. The brunt of injustice always 
falls hardest on those who are the poor, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, those who cannot purchase a voice from which to speak to positions of power. And the church has done a very poor job in declaring truth against injustice. And when we do, it's very selective. Very selective. And so there's a strong application here in our text, um, and we're strong application given to us in the New Testament about how our attitude is to be to two specific positions of power. One to those who are secular authorities who will fall under the weight of God's judgment anyway, and those who are underneath uh, the authority of God within the church. And I want to make those two distinct um, separate applications. The first is what should we do in the face of something like Inauguration Day, which is coming up. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, why does it matter so much? It matters so much because you are a leader. Because you are the only person who is going to call people to fear, serve, and obey God. No one else is going to do that. In fact, I dare say a lot of Christians out there aren't going to do that. So if I can't convince you here who call yourselves Christians today to do that, we're lost. So it matters. Because God wants all people to come to the truth. And the only people who have the knowledge of the truth are those who are those, those remember those, those Tupperware, those used Tupperware dishes that God has put this knowledge of Jesus Christ. All of you who God has put the knowledge of Jesus Christ in are going to deliver that to society. And, and so what is he saying? He's saying pray that God will give us peace so that whether they're a Democrat or they're a Republican, you can proclaim the gospel because on Judgment Day, whether you're Democrat or Republican doesn't matter. Whether or not you're a Christian is all that matters. All that matters. And so we, the church, are in a difficult situation. Some of you have to answer to God for the garbage that you said about President Obama. Because you are commanded to honor him. 1 Peter two seventeen. And some of you had better tread carefully because the new president coming in, you're going to be tempted to say garbage about him too. But what are you commanded to do? To pray for God's grace so that we can live peaceful and godly lives. There's something that has been lost in the church um, among Christians, and I think I'm blaming Facebook. I, I don't know where it happened. Um, but one of the things that we seem to have forgotten is that regardless of whether or not politicians have character or have maintained their character, we are called to, right? We, we, we expect the world to behave like the world, but what are the church supposed to behave like? You're supposed to behave like Jesus. And so that is our calling. When we face the world, what do we do? We pray. Do you think Paul wanted to honor the emperor as he penned those words down there in 1 Timothy? The same emperor who has thrown him in jail and beaten him? No. But what does Paul care about? He doesn't care about the beatings and the scourging. He doesn't care about the, the poor food. He doesn't care about the terrible situation he is. All he cares about is this. Is the gospel marching forth from the words and the deeds of the church of Christ? And that's all Portage cares about, too. 
That's the word that's going to save them. And it all begins with this. Do you fear God? And I don't mean fear God because some of you have bad experiences. And when I say that, this is not like fearing God in the way that a child fears an abusive parent. Right? God is not capricious. He isn't vindictive. He doesn't get drunk and come home and hit people. God is perfect and just in all of his ways. He is the just and perfect judge. And so when we stand before him, we have confidence because of Jesus Christ. But if we step outside of the protection of Jesus because we refused to obey his word, what is left for us but a fearful expectation of judgment on the day of punishment? And so we who are Christians are to live underneath this, recognizing a fear of God so that it guides our actions so that we could say to ourselves, I would never bribe, I would never defraud, I would never steal, I would never cheat, I would never be involved in any kind of lie or falsehood or immoral act. Why? Because God is a righteous judge and I don't want any part of his judgment. I want only his grace. Right? So, we see this living itself forward in the life of Samuel here. Samuel's able to lay claim to that, and everyone says that's true. There's a more important thing that is happening next week, more important, and it is happening Sunday in our annual meeting. And that isn't so much the, the, the sense of giving and, and hearing reports, and those are important things, but not as important as asking the question of who will be a deacon or an elder over you? Who will take over the spiritual needs and watch over your souls? And who will make sure that the widows and the orphans and the needs of the church are taken care of physically? Are they men of strong moral reputation? We have a list of, of, of uh, things. They're on the, on the ballot themselves. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13 uh, talks about deacons and elders. And Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 talks specifically about elders. But Samuel is a great example here, isn't he? Asking that question, could these men stand up and say this? And you could say, no, you've, you've been faithful. You've been faithful. This is the kind of leadership that, that we are called not only to to espouse in those who would lead us as the church. But this is the kind of leadership that each and every one of us needs to take into our schools, into our homes, into our jobs, that we are to be men and women of great power, great strength, not shrinking back, not afraid, but rather putting fear where it belongs, in the hands of God. I like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, which says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others... Because we're afraid of the judgment that's going to fall on those who, who don't know Jesus. And so we, we seek to persuade them, to, 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 to help them to see that you also need to have a sense of fear toward God. But if we just sit with that fear and that's it, um, we, we haven't done well. We need to move forward as well in service. And what's interesting, and I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but I really do want to encourage you to go home and read it. Because it's, it's a great little passage in verses 6 um, through 18. Saul is going to talk about, or Samuel is going to talk about, the different ways in which God has called forward servants. So God has served his people by calling forward servants who will then go and, and, and serve his people because most often God serves his people by calling his people to serve. That makes sense. It sounded really complicated. God calls forward servants to serve his people. God meets our needs by equipping us to help one another, just as a body 
sort of takes care of itself. So God does that. And so we see that he, he tells a story of, of Aaron and Moses and how God raised them up. He tells the, about how the people forgot God. And they, they rejected his ways and they followed the Baals and the Ashtoreths, that's sort of the Middle East, the gods of this area. And, and, and so God allowed the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites to, to wash over them in a wave. He, he allowed the day of judgment to come early and he brought it against the people. And so the people cried out, God save us. And God steps in and he sends uh, 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 Jerubbabel, which is just another name for Gideon. And he, he sends uh, uh, Jephthah and he sends Samuel himself. So Samuel says, don't forget about me. I was also involved in this. You know, don't forget about me. And so God has brought forward these men. What's so interesting to me is that those people that God is serving are those people who don't deserve it. You know what's that? At no point does he say to Israel, Israel, you guys have done great. I'm going to raise up a judge to take care of you. No, Israel, you've messed it all up. Which brings me great comfort because I regularly do the same, Right? And so, and so what we see here is, is an echo even of what Jesus talks about, that Jesus says, you know, we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and, and to seek to do good for those who have used us because God is good even to those people who don't deserve it. But I want to also point out, notice how easily Samuel is able to recite these stories. That is that Samuel has committed to memory the scriptures. And we have found out that despite, as we've done, as you know, people have done all of these surveys, we have more information now than we've ever had about the, the quality of Bible knowledge amongst churches, conservative churches kind of like ourselves. And we've found that it has never been worse since the invention of the printing press, nearly. Even though we have all of these apps and all of these programs and all of these Bibles and study Bibles galore, you know, we have all of this stuff and yet we know so very little. And I want to encourage you, especially those of you who are men who have children in the home, that you memorize scripture. And I want to say this, don't memorize it necessarily like you need to sit down and memorize verbatim John 1 because no one wants to do that. It's really hard, right? It's really hard. But what you can do is you can memorize stories, right? You can memorize stories. Can you tell the story of Gideon to your sons, Paul? Paul can't. He's an easy target. But he's got a lot of sons, so I thought of that. Can I tell the story of... Gideon to, to Emery, can you, can you tell the story of, of, uh, of um, Samuel to, to Zach? Can we, can we recite these stories and say, man, do you look at these stories of faith? Look at these people of power and conviction. Look at how they led. And so that when our, teen, when our kids are teenagers, they're going to school, that they are people who are guiltless as much as a teenager can be guiltless. Not taking bribes, not, 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 not practicing iniquity like the people around them. Are, they willing to serve, are you willing to serve God in your homes and your schools by committing scripture to memory, by committing these stories to memory so that not only can you share them, but you can live them as well? I should have done this a while ago. Sorry about that. I only had three slides and I forgot them all. <laughs> What we see finally from uh, what we see finally from Samuel here, as we look, especially at verse fourteen, 
Again, he says, if you'll fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well with you. Isn't it interesting here that he never says you should obey the king? He says, don't look to your king, look to God. When you're going to fear, serve, and obey, don't look to the king, look to God. It's so interesting to me that this, this Saul is standing here, he's like, I'm about to take over, and Samuel's like, forget that guy, look at God, because that is the one who you are called to, even though they have committed this sin, and as you continue to read the story, there, there's this moment where they, he's, he's bringing them to this moment to see they have rebelled a bit against God just in wanting a king. The reason they wanted a king is because they were facing a king, and they said, well, we want to be like everyone else. It says here, um, as he's wrapping the story up in verse 12, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, it's a story we did last week, he came against you and you said, no, we need a king to reign over us, even though God has taken care of you over and over and over again as your king, you say, no, I, we want to be like everyone else. And that is always the temptation. That is always the thing that resist, resists obedience to God. As we see people around us who seem to have it better, because the grass is always greener, isn't it? And we, we, we look at them and we say, well, they're not obeying God, and, and they're okay. Maybe I can get away with it too. Maybe I can be like them. And the scriptures are so important because they always remind you, no. No. God has something greater in store for your life. God has a grander adventure. He has a greater battle and therefore a greater victory. And he wants to be the one to empower you so that you can march forth with that kind of victory in your hands so that people can look at you just as they looked at Samuel and said, I want to be like that. I need to fear, serve, and obey God. I need to walk in that kind of power and, and strength. I need that same conviction of character. And the question that sits at, with all of us, and I, I don't care if you're a teenager, we have teenagers in the room, and I, I don't care if you're the oldest person in the church. I don't know who that is, and I'm not going to guess. I don't care if you're an elder or a deacon, or a housewife, or a CEO. I don't care who you are. If you are a Christian, you are a leader. And you are leading someone. They're looking at you. Are you Samuel? Or are you trying to mimic the world? This is the, the dangerous place that we constantly find ourselves in, especially as the world has, um, because of globalism, because of technology, and because there's just so much more out there, we have so much more opportunity to engage in worldliness, to have it into our lives. You, I walked into an elevator recently, and I'm listening to some pop song, and I was actually paying attention to the words because I, I really listen to the radio, so, and I was kind of horrified a little bit. I was like, man, I... I'm glad Emery's not in here. I mean, she's, you know, six, so she's not paying attention anyway. Um, but uh, I, I was just like, I'm in an elevator for like 30 seconds, and the world's sort of invading my brain. And there's so many opportunities for the world and its insidiousness, the, the temptations, all of that stuff is, is, is so prevalent. It's never been more prevalent, and therefore, we need to counter it with greater strength with greater conviction, with greater purpose, with greater commitment. 
God has not called you to an easy life. In some ways, life has gotten easier in our convenience, but it has also gotten harder to be faithful to God. And if you are willing to step up and to fight the good fight, as Paul says, after he finished his words to Timothy, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. And so I know that there is stored up for me a crown of righteousness. Not of my own doing, but because Jesus gave it to me and I was faithful to him, feared, served, and obeyed him unto the end. Do you have that kind of strength? Are you going to lead with that kind of conviction? That's the question that Samuel leaves the people with as he steps out and Saul steps in. And what we're going to see, just kind of a spoiler alert, what we're going to see is that Saul fails. And everything crumbles. But Samuel stayed strong. Who will you be? Who will you be? This morning as we come to conclusion, that question lays at everyone's feet. But I also want to offer an invitation that if you need somebody to pray with you, we'll have elders down front. If you want to commit yourself to Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk with you. Elders would love to talk with you if you need to place membership, uh, whatever it is that you need, we invite you to come forward if, if that's uh, something you need and, uh, and we'll meet and talk and pray with you. But let's stand and sing. Praises to our God.